Hello, welcome. Today is August 4th, 2012, and this is broadcast number 32 of Indie Radio. Indie Radio is an indie game development talk show which is here to bring you interviews with both large and lesser known developers, recap the latest news, debate about topics in indie gaming, and to give you some tips and tricks for your journey into programming. Today, I will be your host, Brett Hudson, broadcasting live from the Midwest United States. I'll be the co-host, Ian Jones, co-hosting from the (laughs) East Coast of the United States. Right. We have a handful of guests joining the show today, starting with Jonathan Blow. Hello there. All right. Along with Joe, after or Joe, sorry, <laughs> along with John, after the interview, we'll be catching up with Team Overreact, which has been pushing tons of updates to the game A Shapian's Tale since the last time they joined us on air. First up, we have Connor. Hello. I'm the uh, lead designer and artist, I guess. All right. Uh, we also have Alan. Hi, I'm a secondary designer or something like that, and a lead programmer. Tyler? I'm an auxiliary programmer. Um, do a lot of spare development. Uh, we also have Cameron. I am an artist. And Emmanuel. Hey, I'm Emmanuel. I'm a concept artist and writer. All right, and after this, we'll get to our news. <laughs> Alright, so first up in news, we have some OUYA updates for the uh, OUYA console, obviously. Uh, Their Kickstarter is ending in four days, and right now they're at $6.6 million, with a little over 50,000 backers, which is just insane. Um, They've added some new updates in their update log. There's currently nine. Uh, There's a new video with the full controller uh, design. Uh, shown and in they it. added, instead of circles on the buttons now, it's O-U-Y-A. Uh, you also have a limited edition Kickstarter special uh, backing pledge that you can do. Uh, for $140, you can get a brushed, a brown brushed metal finish of the Ouya and controller. Ooh. Alright. Um, as always, they said please add an extra $30 if you want a second controller to that. And the controller is also a brown brushed metal finished, if I understand, and that will be estimated. Deli- that has estimated delivery of March two thousand thirteen. All right, and then there's another Kickstarter project that just came out called the Oculus Rift. All right, and it says step into the game. Twenty eight days to go. One point um, two ish million dollars so far, and almost five thousand backers. Uh, Ian, do you want to say some more about this? It's essentially a virtual reality headset. So uh, each of your eyes gets a different projection one and it tracks your head and everything. And it's very affordable considering that the other virtual reality headsets at the moment are much more expensive to get this kind of quality. Mm-hmm. Um, also, so without the backers, it wouldn't be possible, but they've already got more than four times their goal. It started three days ago, and you can go and check out if you want. It uh, just Google Oculus Rift, O C U L U S Rift. 
Mm-hmm. All right, and then for the prizes, they have pledged ten dollars or more. You get a special thanks. Fifteen dollars or more, you get a poster, a limited edition poster. They said, please add fifteen dollars for international shipping. Um, pledge twenty five dollars or more, you get a T shirt. Thirty five or more, T shirt and poster. Seventy five signed T shirt plus poster. Two hundred seventy five, and you get an unassembled Rift prototype kit and Doom three BFG. $300 or more, uh, early Rift development kit plus Doom 3 BFG. Um, $335 or more, early Rift development kit plus all the prizes listed above. Um, $500, uh, it's basically mostly just the same except they sign and add in an extra thing. $5,000 one was uh, to visit the team for a day. And all of these are estimated to come out between October to, to December, although I don't see a release date on the actual device itself yeah anyone who's interested in more technical detail about this you can go on youtube and check out john carmack's keynote from quakecon 2012 which just went up last night he talks for like three hours but in the (laughs) middle of there somewhere um you know he talks about all his recent vr experiments and how he was playing with the oculus and just sort of what it's like in terms of field of view and rendering fidelity and all that kind of thing all right, and over on the Sierra blog, which is the people who made Construct and Construct 2, uh, they did an interview with Ben Chong, the founder of Market.js, which is a handy library that allows you to make money with HTML5. Um, so because a uh, common complaint, I guess, or a, uh, something that's you know kind of missing from HTML5 is the monetization, uh, he tried to... Uh, God, I can't think today. (laughs) Try to overcome that by making a library that allows you to easily make money from HTML5. Uh, So ads and things like that, just like you would get in Flash. Um, We'll have another article about another way to make money with HTML5 slightly later on in the news. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Skira also posted another um, blog post about the competition results on their favorite features video competition. Um, for those of you that don't remember us talking about it, or this is your first time listening to indie radio or something, uh, basically it was a competition based on people making videos of their favorite features inside Construct 2, and then the best video slash, you know, feature gets prizes. Um, the first place went to a guy talking about the layers in Construct 2, um, it says his name is Rilem. I'm guessing that's the username. Uh, Jogo... S- I can't even say that. Jogo Serratis. Something like that. Um, got second place. And then third place was by Velojet. And, uh, the videos were... Uh, th- well, the second place doesn't say what it is. And then the third one is all about plugins. And then there's some other ones like Honorable Mentions and... They each received copies of Indie Game the Movie, uh, free license for Construct 2 Pro. Um, one guy got a flute and a flying monkey, so <laughs> it's pretty I'm exciting. I'm ready to knock me on flute, but anyways, uh, over on Stenciling Around, the stencil blog, obviously, uh, the Newground Stencil Jam just ended, and there's a total of $1,000 in prizes that will be given out to the top three games. 
Uh, there's a competition page where you can play some of the fine creative entries, which hopefully we'll be able to tweet about when we won't forget and everything. And then uh, they'd like to thank everyone who participated and New Browns for hosting the event. Also, they are going to have an update on 3.0, Sensor 3.0 soon, and apparently development is going great, or so they claim. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, do you want to take the next news article as well? Uh, the, as I mentioned before, this is the other HTML5 monetization thing. There is an ebook about making money with HTML5. Uh, it's $20, and supposedly he made over one month in over... He made over six thousand dollars in one month. I can't even talk straight right now. And furthermore, I am very skeptical about all this stuff right now for some reason. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it says so that it's a I'll... digital book, which is kind of interesting, and it's about thirty pages long. Meaning that, considering it's priced at twenty dollars, that's a little less than a dollar per page. About seventy-five <clears throat> cents, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not in the mood to do math. Anyway, uh, it talks about requirements to get started and all sorts of stuff. And uh, it's definitely something worth checking out. I'm not sure how well it's going to turn out. It's created by True Valhalla over at the GMC. And this is a perfect transition into GMC Jam number 7, which took place last weekend. Alright, uh, it was a 72-hour long competition uh, taking place on the GameMaker community. Using, of course, the program Game Maker. And uh, there was a theme, two worlds, with a handicap. The game must have at least one cutscene. And um, basically they're in the voting stage right now, but there were $365 worth of prizes, and they were much more creative than I thought. Um, like, Dangerous Gave gave away Steam games to the 7th place, the 13th place, and the 19th place. There was... awarded to whoever has the best development log. Um, Then he's giving... This other guy's giving away Steam games to 4th, 5th, and 6th place. And then... um, Yeah, there's there's tons of stuff in here. And then right now, they're judging the games. Uh, It's 15 days long, judgment is. It started Tuesday, 31st of July, and goes till the 15th of August, which is a Wednesday. It doesn't say how many... Uh, games were entered in the jam, so I'm sorry I can't disclose that. But the votes go name of the game, author, name of the game, author, name of the game, author, for the top three, obviously. Uh, Best use of the theme, uh, best use of the handicap, best presentation, and the best development blog. Um, So if you guys are interested in playing some games from the GMC jam, just go to gmc.yoyogames.com and go into the community forum and check that out. Alright, that wraps up our news, and we are going to go into the interview with Mr. Jonathan Blow right after this. Jonathan Blow, uh, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Alright, so for people who don't know who you are, or don't know too much about you, would you like to give a little quick 
brief bio on what you've made, what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I am an indie developer, I guess. I, my last game was a game called Braid that was pretty well received, and I'm currently working on a game called The Witness, which is a uh, 3D exploration puzzle game, and it's going to come out probably for PC and iOS first, and then we're going to look at other platforms after that. Awesome. Um, one thing I noticed you didn't quite mention was uh, Indie Game the Movie. Why didn't you mention that? Oh, uh, well, it's not really my project. You know, it was fun to be in. I'm in the movie mm-hmm. for about five minutes. You mm-hmm. know, it's sort of, I'm a more minor character in it. You know, the movie mostly focuses on the Team Meat guys and uh, Phil Fish. Uh, but yeah, anyone who hasn't seen it should check it out. It's a cool movie. Yeah. yeah we actually just recently watched it. Uh, it was pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty bizarre talking to you right now because I saw you on in the movie, you know, and it's like, oh, hey, he's in a movie, and now I'm talking to you, and it's it's just weird. Do you, do you get that a lot? Uh, not so much. I don't hang out in places where there's a lot of game developers these days, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, there's there's my company, you know, so I see game developers there every day, but it's kind of different, and then. I don't know. Once in a while, I'll be hanging out at like a cafe, and someone will walk in and say, "Oh, I saw you in Indie Game the movie," and that's kind of weird. <laughs> but you know, it's not exactly like most normal people who don't think about video games all the time, walking around in the world, haven't seen that movie mm-hmm. and have no idea what it is. So I'm pretty safe usually when I walk down the street. <laughs> Nobody's that's like, nice. "Give me your autograph." Yeah, pretty much not. Um, so you talked about, or you mentioned your team in there. Um, you want to just give us a brief overview of who's on your team? Um, yeah, so it's a little bit ill-defined, actually, uh, because we've got a bunch of people who are working on the game, and some of them work for the company, and some of them are external. So uh, people who work for the company is me, and uh, there's three programmers, Um named uh, Ignacio, Andy, and Salvador, and they're all uh, really good, you know, high-end 3D guys. They all came from other, uh, you know, serious places, so one of them had been working on Killzone, and one of them had been working on, like, the SOCOM games, and one of them, uh, you know, Ignacio had been the the developer relations guy at NVIDIA, so it's it's a lot of expertise Mm -hmm. uh, piled up in one place. Um, We've got a couple of 3D modelers, uh, Shannon and um, Luis, and uh, those are all the actual employees. And then we've got some contractors who are basically working on this. We've got a dude named Eric who lives in uh, Washington who'd done some work with Diane on the Mist games. And because we're also um, a puzzle exploration game, you know, that's sort of inspired by the Mist series in a certain way, it's really great to have him on. Uh, and a girl named Orshi, who um, this is her first job out of school, I think, um, but she's doing some really interesting conceptual stuff. And then aside from all those people uh, <laughs> who are sort of the most directly working on the game, we're working with some architects. Uh, so there's a couple architecture firms called Form Design and David Fletcher Studio who are like designing the buildings and designing oh, wow. the landscapes that we're putting in the game. Um, which, uh, not that many companies do things that way, but lately... Um, I think I think it's starting to be done more because you get a really good result when you do that. When somebody who actually knows about buildings decides what your building should look like, it's just better. Mm-hmm. 
And it's definitely important in your game, because it's puzzle-based, and you want to make the puzzles, obviously. Yeah. Really, I don't know yeah, what the word I is. Mean, <laughs> it's been really interesting, because toward the beginning of development, um, it was just me working on the game, just trying to figure out what is this game, right? It's mm -hmm. just me sitting down typing some code, and, you know, I sort of had the code from Braid in an earlier project, and I mashed them together, and I was just building stuff out of blocks. It was like, well, I guess I need a building here to put these puzzles in, so let me just make some slabs and, like, throw them together really messy, and it's super ugly and stuff, and it's just great to see the game transition from that to being, like, taking place in an actual location that feels serious, you know, that has, like, gravitas to it. It really uh, makes the game a lot better, actually. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I was going to ask how you met the other people on your team, but you mentioned like 20 people there, and I'm pretty sure that would take an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, it's funny because I don't know that many people in the game industry because I never um, – I've been independent since like 1995. And I've done you – know, way back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I used to do consulting at some bigger game projects, so – you know, I worked a little bit on some of the Oddworld games and on, like, Deus Ex 2 a little bit and stuff like that. But, um, you know, if, if when you work at a company for a substantial amount of time is how you, like, get to know people and stuff. And I never really did that. Uh, but uh, early on in this project, I just put up a job posting at Ignacio, the, the dude I mentioned who uh, was at NVIDIA before. He wanted to get back into games. And, uh, you know, he sort of came on there and then he knew some other people and I don't know, mostly through friends or people who already work here sort of branched out. <clears throat> um, oh, sorry. My computer like freaked out there for a sec. Um, <laughs> they're made to do. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so you've been indie since 1995, did you say? Yeah, about that. <laughs> it's like my entire life. <laughs> so how does it feel being independent for so long obviously if it's 1995 you were probably one of the earlier indies yeah i mean we didn't really think of it as being an indie developer back then like that term didn't even exist mm -hmm. because it's sort of the mid to late 90s is when mainstream game teams started getting really big and games started getting really expensive, right? That's like when games were first going 3D and they started getting really hard to make. Mm -hmm. So w when I started my first company in like December 95, January 96, with a friend from college, we were just thinking of it as, well, we're really good programmers and we're just going to be able to jump in there and compete with those really big teams that have like 10 people in them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's all it was, uh, you know... Whereas now you've got like really big teams or like 400 people. It's just a different situation. So what exactly is The Witness for our listeners that don't know what it is? Just... Uh, well, so after I made Braid, um, there were certain ideas in that game that I was really fascinated by that I wanted to explore in a new way. Um, part of... Uh, should, should I mention what Braid is a little bit for anyone who hasn't played that? It's a it's a puzzle platformer. 
Um, it's out on a, a number of different places. It's on the PC and it's on the Xbox 360 and the PS3 and stuff. And But as a puzzle platformer, it focused mostly on the puzzles. There wasn't very much action platforming in it. And the, part of what Braid did was to make each puzzle as individual as possible and as interesting as possible. But the other thing it did was the goal of a puzzle in that game wasn't really to be hard. It was... Um, to have an idea behind it. So some of the puzzles in Braid are actually kind of easy, and some of them are super hard, but each one is like an illustration of some concept of what happens when you play around with time. And I liked that. Um, that idea that puzzles were about illustrations or about communicating things. Uh, and I wanted to take it into a different direction. So in The Witness, um, it's a very different kind of core game, right? It's not a platformer or anything. You just walk around this open world, um, so you could sort of think of it as like Skyrim without fighting, um, <laughs> and actually uh, in a much smaller world, actually, because what we're trying to do and for a long time, video games have all been about like uh, bragging about who has the biggest world and stuff, right? Is how many square miles can you walk around in and stuff? And for this explosions. Game, yeah. For, for this game, we actually... Uh, want to make the world as small and high density as possible. So wherever you're standing, like maybe you're doing some puzzles, if you're stuck right now or you just don't want to do this puzzle right now, if you just look over, there's like a building like five seconds walk away and you can go over there and do something there, right? And anywhere you are, that's true. So you don't have to walk a long time to try and figure out where there is something interesting. There's always something interesting. But so, and then what's... Uh, the, the interesting thing about the puzzles is that they're not just about solving the puzzle. It's not like a bunch of arbitrary things, but each puzzle has an idea behind it. But unlike Raid, which only had about 60 or 70 puzzles in the whole game, this game has like 500 puzzles. And some of them are a lot smaller, but it makes this sort of stream of ideas. So when you're playing it, it's not really like you're solving a bunch of hard puzzles. It's like a stream of ideas is going through your head that's being introduced by the game. And what those ideas are and stuff, I don't really want to get too far into because that starts to spoil the game. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been pretty cool design-wise. Uh, and I should say uh, we've been working on this. Or I, I started working on this game actually a little bit before Braid became available to the public in like August 2008. So it's almost the four-year anniversary of when I started working on it, which is a really long time to be working on a game. Uh, but I actually took a break because I for about six or seven months in 08, 09, I didn't think that I was going to do this as the next game. So it's, it's really been like three years and five months or something. <laughs> so, um, so you said you have about 500 puzzles in your game, and that seems like a lot of puzzles. So I'm wondering if you designed all of them, or if not, how would you collaborate with people to make all of these what sounds like interconnect puzzles? Well, you know, three or four years is a long time, right? So if you, if you want to do 500 puzzles in four years, it's not that much, right? It's 125 puzzles a year or something. Um, and, and like I say, a, a lot of them are kind of simple. Um, so the, the point... Uh, oh, to clarify, yeah, I, I did design almost all the puzzles. Um, there have been a few. Like I'd say there's maybe 10 puzzles in the game that other people on the team have designed. Um <laughs> And uh, but they're good. They make a very positive impact on the game. Um, but I also, you know, I don't game design as a full time thing. I am, I am pretty much the only uh, game designer. Um, 
Although I would say uh, Worshi, that uh, who, who I mentioned in the intro, also does a little bit of game design. I can't say exactly what because it's a spoiler. <laughs> um, but I also do a lot of programming, especially at the start of the project. I was basically 90% of the time programming and designing 10% of the time. So basically, I just do a lot of work all the time and put in a lot of hours and just get all this stuff done. I mean, because, you know, it's an indie team too, right? So, like, I have to run the company, and it's a real company now, so, like, I have to make sure people have health insurance and stuff. Oh, wow. Um, post it on the blog all the time. So we have, we have a blog, you know, where we make development updates to the game, and I make sure that stuff shows up on there once in a while, and I go do PR and talking to the press. So it's not even like I get to spend full time on game design uh you know there's all this stuff to do but somehow you just work hard and you get it all done um i have a i have a pretty good question actually um i was wondering i noticed in braid a lot of your puzzles were really unique and i love that i love that you know, i felt like every puzzle you were playing was a whole different story um but do you feel do you find yourself kind of recycling your puzzle ideas no um and the reason is, it's, it's, it's related to what I was saying before about the point of the puzzles is not really to be hard. Like, what I, I got lucky because I didn't, before Braid, really understand what I was getting into. I just started making this game. And then the subject matter in Braid of, like, hey, you can mess around with time in all these different ways uh, sort of organically led me to this new idea about puzzle design, or at least it was new to me, which is just that... You don't want to sit down and try to build something that's like going to stump the player, be tricky, or, or where that's the point. Because when you do that, you are going to run out of ideas and you're going to maybe start recycling things or whatever. Instead, it goes a different direction where you sit down and you look at the situation. Like in Braid, it was like, hey, I can, I can split time into this parallel universe where some of it's joined together, you know. Just... You, what you do is you carefully just look at what happens when I do that, when I have this parallel universe and some things are in both universes. And then you look at what happens and you see what's interesting and then you make a puzzle that illustrates that thing that you saw that was interesting, right? And as long as you do that, you're not going to repeat yourself or uh, dredge up old stuff um, because you – you already, it's like you found something interesting, you did a puzzle about it, and when you something else, you know if that's interesting and different enough or not, right? So, yeah. you know, in The Witness, when I say there's 500 puzzles, it's not like I designed the game by sitting down and saying, okay, there's 16 areas, and in each <laughs> area, like, yeah. I mean, which is how a lot of people do games, right? This was totally different. It's been it's been years of messing around in the space of the game, seeing what happened, and hmm. taking the best of what happens and putting that in puzzles and then throwing away other stuff. Like I, there's you know there's five hundred puzzles in the game now, but I've probably designed at least two hundred more that I threw away because they weren't good, you know, because they didn't work that well with the other stuff in the game, or because. Um, for whatever reason, you know, like they just yeah. weren't enough or they were ugly or things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting process. The reason I ask is we're actually in the middle of developing a game that it heavily uses puzzles. And uh, it always stumps me just trying to think about 
coming up with like a kind of like an endless amount of puzzles without recycling my ideas. And I never really thought about it that way. And it's really interesting. Yeah, actually, for anyone who's interested in that way of designing puzzles, at Indiecade last year, uh, which is a, obviously an, an indie development conference uh, that happens in Los Angeles, um, I gave a talk by Ryan Vash, who's working on a really interesting game called Miegakure. It's a puzzle uh, platform game, and that's on YouTube. So if you just do a search on YouTube for Jonathan Blow, Mark Tenbosch, Indy Cade, there's like an hour-long lecture where we go through this puzzle design process and just talk about how to do it in detail and with examples from each of our games. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Thanks. So are there a lot of your lectures up on YouTube? I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, some of them are in other places, too, on the Internet. Um, but uh, it's good that they're finding their way there because it means I don't have to be organized and put them up on the Internet and all that. <laughs> um, do you have any recommendations for ones that you really like? <laughs> uh, of my lectures? Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, I pretty much had a point behind all of them. So it, it more depends on what, what people are interested in, you know, when they want to see them. So some of them are uh, very... Um, how, how should I say? Like, there, there's a couple that I gave, maybe especially around 2000, 2008, or, or sorry, 2007, 2000, you can find, um, that are just about, uh, like, there's one I gave in Australia that's just about, here's how you do prototyping for independent games in order to make sure your idea is good, right? And here's here's kind of what you look for, and um, that's, that's kind of a talk for somebody who kind of knows how to program a little bit, but really wants to get into making games. Then there's other stuff I do. Like this, you know, this talk that I gave at Rice University in 2010, which is more about the ethics of game design. Like, you sit down and design a game that a player is going to interact with in certain ways. And what should you be thinking about what you're making that player do, right? Like, is it, is it a good idea to make the player do these things or is it not? Which is more of a, an abstract thing that's for people who are kind of actively making a lot of games and want to be thoughtful about what they do. I don't know. It all depends. Mm -hmm. um, what do you? What is your uh, your outlook on um, on crowdfunding, such as like Kickstarter and APID funding and all? Like, do you think those are actually good sources of, of funding and and also marketing and advertisement? Yes, yeah, they're good. I mean, I I hope that indie developers uh, take them seriously. Like, I've already given money to a couple of indie Kickstarters where the project just ended up getting abandoned, you know, and not yeah. getting finished, which is a drag. Uh, so my hope is that that doesn't happen too often. Like, if that happens a lot, people are going to lose faith in something like Kickstarter and just stop giving money to it, right? Um, yeah. So we have to hope that that doesn't happen, because it's pretty cool right now that people, you know, someone famous like Tim Schafer can get like $4 million, and that's cool, but even someone less famous can get a substantial amount of money, and that's very helpful. And what's really good about that is that it means that people are uh, less at the mercy of publishers and other distribution methods for how to make money, right? They can get money directly from the people who want the thing. And that's always good because, you know, publishers will try to squeeze developers uh, into the worst deals possible mm -hmm. as they can. Like I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm part of this uh, – 
initiative called the Indie Fund, which is a bunch of independent developers who made um, money off their games that are trying to fund other independent developers because that gives them an option um, of, of not having to go to publishers, right, to, to do their games that are moderately yeah. ambitious. And, and that's what that does is it puts pressure on those deal terms that publishers offer, right, so they, they can't screw developers as hard going into the future and hopefully that's working but kickstarter yeah, also we were, so yeah. I, I like uh, i was going to say we were actually um looking into indie fund not maybe about a year ago and the, i think our only issue with it not issue with it but our only issue as we're, with ourselves was that we didn't have the company really put together but it definitely is a really interesting group i was, I was attracted to immediately yeah well, you mentioned about uh, publishers screwing people over, and um, I think a good example of that would be the whole Fez stuff that's going on right now, with Microsoft not allowing them to patch the patch or something like yeah, that. that's a very complicated situation. Um, that's not quite the same level. Like, the level of screwing people over that I'm talking about sort of already happened to Fez when they signed with Microsoft in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's sort of part of what you don't hear about. The whole thing with the patch, um, you know, I think it's it's just a sign of the ways that, that those console platforms have aged and they're sort of not keeping up with the modern day very well. Mm-hmm. I actually have a, a blog post. Uh, if you go to the-witness.net and you scroll down a couple, I have a, a blog post about console certification processes and, and the stuff that games have to go through and why it's not so necessary. I think I read that. Um, is it about like saving games and stuff, that article? Yeah. It's part of it. Yep. Okay. Really, all the stuff I talk about there is just the tip of the iceberg. Like The stuff you have to do put a game on the PS3, the Xbox 360 is crazy. You know, I mean, unless you're talking about XBLIG, uh, which is a different thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, we already covered your feelings towards Kickstarter. How about um, game development communities? How do you feel about them? Well, I, what I've learned <laughs> about myself is that I'm not that of a community guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I... Um, you know, it's like a couple private email lists that I'm on, even relatively uh, experienced developers on them. And I even unsubscribed from those a couple days ago uh, because I felt like they weren't that productive. Um, for someone who's uh, been doing stuff for years. Um, At this point in the show, Skype actually crashed. So there's a bit of a transition here. I'm trying to transition it. Uh, I edited out all the silence. Um, no content was lost, and we resumed pretty quickly, but just in case you get confused, that's what happened. All right, so, sorry about that, guys. Um, Skype crashed. Good. Yes, quality software. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, I don't know, I don't know where it crashed. I don't know what I was talking about. Um, I was kind of concerned about getting Skype back up, so I didn't really think about catching where it was. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, totally I think it was about you, and you were talking about the gaming communities, and... I'm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so so back when I was like learning to program, we didn't we didn't have all this stuff, right? So you either had to buy a book and you didn't even know what books to buy and hardly any of them existed or you had to somehow get lucky and know people who knew how to program. And I didn't get that lucky. So back when I was in high school and even in early college, I wasn't nearly as good of a programmer as I could have been. Um, if I just had exposure to more people who were doing things. So that's what I like about these internet communities that are all over the place now is you, it's very easy to get out there and see what other people are doing and see that something's possible and like, Oh yeah, I could do that too. And that is super valuable. Like don't underestimate how valuable that is. It's huge. But at the same time, there's a thing you got to be careful for, right? Which is that um, a lot of people, like if you if you take any individual community and you sort of look at the baseline of what people are doing like like let me just take a random one like like reddit's game dev channel right mm-hmm. if you look on there most of the postings on there are absolute newbie questions like how do i you know draw a line on the screen or something i mean they're not that bad but but you know they're very beginner stuff and that's good because it means a lot of beginners are learning, but it also just means that you don't want to gauge your progress by looking at the beginner stuff all the time, right? You just want mm-hmm. to make sure that you're learning and, and becoming one of the more knowledgeable people in the community pretty fast. Because um, given, given the way the modern internet works, it shouldn't take that long to learn these things, you know? Um, and I see sometimes that people don't, push themselves to be one of the uh, more knowledgeable people in the community and learn and like graduate. They just sort of um, just feel good because they're part of a community and they're sort of there to feel like part of the community rather than to learn. And that's a trap. So I would encourage people not to fall in that trap, but, but to use these communities for the very valuable thing they are. Yeah. Um, actually something related to that. Um, our team actually, we actually came from a, one of these communities, um, Yo-Yo Games community to be specific. And uh, I think I, I got that vibe um, when I went back because we, we left and we started using C++ and using Skype and we just kind of stopped at the community. And when we went back, it just felt like there wasn't really any more game developers there. They were just kind of like people that said they made games and like they really just like looking at talking about games and it was, it was definitely a, a lacking compared to when we were first in the community. So yeah, so, so there's growing. a paradox. Sorry, there's a paradox there, right? Which is it's <laughs> valuable to be on a forum or something and typing to people and communicating about how to make games. But at the same time, every minute that you're typing on a forum about how to make games is a minute that you're not making games. And making games is how you actually learn. So people who are spending hours a day on game creation forums actually probably aren't learning that much because they're not, you know, so the way you get really good is you go to a community, you get your initial context, you understand what people are doing, what tools they use, you know, you maybe download the tools, you play with them a little bit, you ask some initial questions and get get enough answers that you kind of know what you're doing, but then just work hard for a while and don't go on forums and waste a lot of days there because that's kind of how you stagnate, right? The way, the way you learn is actually by making stuff. And some people just don't make that leap because they like posting on forums, right? It's easy to, to read forums and post on forums. It doesn't really take – it's like watching TV, right? It doesn't take that much brain power or initiative, but <laughs> that has consequences. Yeah. Okay. 
And then a similar. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm sorry. So I I get the uh, sense that the best mentality to have as an indie game developer or any sort of game developer is to interact with fellow uh, game players that need to be involved. So you want to have a a more involved uh, idea of how games are formed and how you know you come together and discuss these sort of things. Sure, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's different <laughs> ways to do it, right? So. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, what, what would you kind of say would be an alternative? I mean, it kind of sounds like a dumb question, I know, but I don't know, just to kind of inform anyone who's interested. Um, or, so, or is it kind well, of like I guess a, I'm not clear. Do you mean just getting together with other game developers or showing your game to a lot of players or, or both? Just general involvement. Yeah. Both. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I guess both. Involved. I guess the good question is, what do you think is more important? Actually, um, would it be would it be more a better choice to in, interact with your your fellow gamers or your game developers? Uh, probably developers, because those are the other people that are learning, right, and thinking about stuff from the perspective of how to make things. Like you should you should be in touch with what people play and what they want to play, because that's kind of a valuable tether to reality in some ways. Um, but you also don't want to fall into a trap of like making something that you you think people are going to want to play, but you don't necessarily have that strong of an internal drive to make yourself. That's like how crappy games get made. So don't do that. Um, yeah, it's definitely a good point. But yeah, I mean, there's you, you actually don't need that much interaction with other. Uh, game developers either it can be good and and different people have different personalities and some people like to do a lot of that i like to do less of it now you know it's just whatever works for you yeah um going back to connor's question about you know like uh what would be an alternative i was gonna bring up game jams you know like uh game jams obviously there's communities behind them like uh the ludum dare community and um there's a great mixture of new developers and experienced developers, and obviously um, the goal of the community is to make games, and obviously the game jam happens uh, in Ludum Dare's, <clears throat> um, I don't know what the word is, but um, they have it every four months, obviously, and it forces you to create a game. So I was thinking that was kind of like a like middle point in all this. Uh, what, what do you think, John? Um, I think game jams are cool. Uh, again, as learning devices like that. Um, but uh, I'm also anti-game jam a little bit. Um, like, like not anti-game jam in the sense that, like, oh, I don't think game jams should exist or anything like that. But I, f- I feel like, again, people kind of get caught in this trap where once they get experienced, um, and it's not even game jams, really, but there's this thing where indie developers, once they get experienced, you know, they want to feel like they're making games... Um, that are interesting and, and and making games is hard, right? So you sort of, as soon as you get something that's kind of playable, you want to feel like it's done and you want to put it out there, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens is people end up making games that are kind of shallow, um, that, that have interesting possibilities, but they didn't really go explore those possibilities. Um, so my friend Chris Hecker kind of calls that peeing on territory. Like you make up some <laughs> cool gameplay mechanic that nobody's done before and you sort of pee there but you don't you don't really do a good job of it and the problem with game jams is they encourage that because you only get a couple days to do something so you can't do it very deeply right um so 
there's not really, I don't think there's a, like, I think game jams are good for beginners and for learning and for getting in touch with the community. But if you want to do like serious design work that generally involves spending more time on something than, uh, you know, a weekend or whatever. And, uh, and it's not necessarily that people should have to do that or anything, but it's just that there are certain of us who feel like that's what there's a shortage of right now. Like there's not that many designers doing really serious, deep thinking design, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people, there's thousands of people doing, you know, eight hour games or games in a weekend and stuff. And, and so we would sort of like it if just even a few of those other people would sort of migrate over and do longer term stuff. I don't think it has to be four years. Uh, I wouldn't, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't try to coerce people into doing four-year projects, but, you know, six months is not bad. Um, and uh, we actually, so we did a little, uh, a thing called the Depth Jam. It's sort of more like a retreat than a jam, but um, it was about getting together for four days, just four of us who were thinking really hard about our games and uh, working on them and focusing on specific questions and having focused discussions. And we have a post about that. I actually have one on, on the blog and then there's links to everybody else's postings about it too. Oh, no. And that was just you and a few other developers, did you say? Yes, uh, there's four of us total. So it was, mm-hmm. it was very small. Hmm, I, that sounds pretty interesting. I'd like to see something like that come together on a bit of a bigger scale. Um, yeah, we have questions about how to scale it. We're not sure if it could scale or if it's a good idea to scale it or if there's a point because p- part of the point is just that you know you can have a two-hour discussion about some part of somebody's game mm-hmm. and then at night they can work on it and improve it and then the next day you play it some more and then have another discussion and then at night they can work on it. And once you scale the thing, it's like you can't have that many people in a deep discussion because mm-hmm. nobody – you don't get to participate as much and all that. And so you would end up with parallel tracks and it's almost like separate events. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. We'll, we'll think about it. Yeah. How to do. That's definitely an interesting thing though. Um, it was fun. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm going to transition back to the witness. Um, uh, one of our users had a question saying, what role does music play for you in your games? And I was also just wondering, you know, like what kind of music are you going to have in the witness? Yeah, well, I can't make a general statement because music is different in each game. It just mm-hmm. sort of is based on the needs of the game. So for Braid, I had a lot of things that I wanted to make happen, and I found a musical style that works for that. Uh, in The Witness, I have completely different things that I want to make happen, and my conclusion for that so far is that there isn't going to be music in the game at all. It's going to be all a naturalistic soundscape, and we're just working... Uh, really hard on making a soundscape that's interesting and different everywhere, you know? So we do stuff like if you're walking down a hallway in the witness, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll have a base layer of footsteps that play, you know, every time your foot meets the ground. So that's very standard, but then we'll have a, a set of reverb to play on top of that. So we'll say, this is what the reverberation for the footstep is at this the south end of the hall, and this is what the reverberation is at the north end. And then as you play, it'll blend between those, um, you know, based on where in the hallway you are. So you get this shifting sound, even just your footsteps based on where you are in that structure, right? So we're doing that kind of thing wow. rather than putting music in. Because the game's about paying attention to your environment, and music is sort of an artificial thing from outside. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we, we want all the sound to come from inside the environment. Interesting. That's actually a really interesting thought. Uh, a lot of games really play with sound, um, and that kind of upsets me because, like, you can go, you can do a lot with sound in games um, and just make it like a mechanic in itself. And I, I think that's, that's a really interesting direction you're taking. Yeah, and even if it's not taken all the way to being a mechanic, the people really, especially indie developers, consistently underestimate how important sound is. Yeah. You know, you can take a game with the most basic, you know, not worked hard on pixel art or whatever and not high tech anything and it, you take the version of it that just has really basic sound effects go like bleep bleep bloop or whatever um, and then you just do redo all the sound for it like from a, a sound effect guy who's good and it just makes the game way better mm -hmm. just your brain responds so much more to everything but because you can't see sound developers don't take it very seriously and in fact when people play games they don't understand how much the sound is adding to their play experience but after yeah. they played it they're like wow that was cool you know yeah i watched this thing um i want to say it was in um a class in middle school but it we watched this clip from a few movies um one with music and one without and it was a completely different scene without the music oh yeah i saw that at the, the et thing on youtube i think so yeah yeah that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's just completely different. So, um, with The Witness, um, I've heard a lot of different release dates and stuff from many different sources. Do you think a release this year is still real, uh, realistic? Um, it is probably not realistic. We haven't updated the webpage. I think it still says 2012. Um, I think we're looking at uh, 2013, I'm pretty sure. Uh, hopefully not too late in 2013. Uh, but it's definitely 2013. It will not be 2014. So the, the funny thing is I keep pushing the release date back. The original release date was winter 2010. Um, but, but that's when it was a much less ambitious game. And as we started making it, it just became clear that we could do all this great stuff with it. And so why not do it and just make it as good of a game as we can? Uh, so that's what we've been doing. And it's, it's going to be nice. I, I got to tell you. Um, it'll also be nice to have finished it because it'll have been four years. <laughs> and then uh, are you just going to lean back and watch what happens after that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to ignore the internet, I think. What I learned from the Braid release experience is that I probably shouldn't read reviews on the internet and I probably shouldn't read forum postings about my games on the internet. So I'm going to try not to do that and we'll see how much discipline I actually have in that direction. Um, but yeah, it's hard. After, yeah, it's going to be hard. I don't know if I'll actually successfully be able to do it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've got a lot of work to do even after the game's done. It'll be, uh, you know, we'll probably take a little break, but we want to do ports to all kinds of platforms and stuff. And then there's always, as the designer, I have to work sort of harder than everyone else because... You know, now there's this company with all these programmers and stuff and, and, and 3D modelers, and so the game ships, and then the 3D modelers don't necessarily know what to model next, right? Mm -hmm. But we're paying them, and it's like, well, we kind of have to find something for them to do. And if I don't know what the next game is, then there's nothing for them to do, you know? So uh, that's... That's kind of rough. So I also, you know, maybe while we're doing this initial porting, 
maybe we'll be adapting the models and stuff to lower end platforms and things. But during that process, I have to actually figure out completely like what the next game is and make sure it's going to be good and, and all that stuff. So I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, what other platforms are you thinking about uh, porting it to besides PC and uh, iOS, obviously? Well, it's hard to say because things are changing really fast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're coming out in 2013 now, depending on what time of year we come out, um, maybe uh, maybe we're not that far from the release of some of the next-gen consoles. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of excluding Wii U from that. Like, Wii U is going to come out this year, but I don't see a reason to port to that right now. Because um, it doesn't look to me... Like there's any reason to own one, um, but I could be very wrong about that, and I'll, I'll be happy to be wrong about that. And if it becomes a successful machine, we'll definitely do a port to it. But uh, you know, right now we're sort of looking at maybe the next Xbox, maybe the next PS3, um, maybe just like Android tablets or Windows Seven tablets are probably going to be pretty big. And um, because because our game is about this kind of puzzle solving thing that involves drawing lines and stuff it's a really good fit for uh, tablets in general so i've been actually trying uh, you know samsung has this windows 8 tablet that that people have been oh yeah um but it only exists kind of in in pre-consumer form right now and i've been trying to talk to them and saying hey man ship me a version of this tablet so we can get our game running really well on it and you'll have like software for it it's just they're this giant company it's impossible to talk to the right person so that has been unsuccessful but if we can get it on a like a windows 8 tablet by the end of the year that would be pretty awesome by the end of this year i mean you know oh wow sure it would and that's just more work for you (laughs) You know, there's there's an infinite amount of work. Like that's true. <laughs> that's what makes it awesome, though. If you think about it, like it would be annoying if you just ran out of things to do. Yeah, but then you just make a new game. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have you guys had any mental breakdowns like uh, Team Meat did in Indie Game the movie? Tor- during- no, uh, but the situation's very different. So I mm-hmm. when I was raid psychologically things were really different because you know i had someone helping me with that right like so david hellman was doing uh you know the majority of the art for the game and did a lot of work but i was still in charge of the project and i was doing all these other roles you know just like the team meet guys were doing you know business and talking to microsoft every day and like pr and and all that in addition to all the programming and design and, and trying to meet a really tight deadline right that's sort of the kind of thing that I was doing on Braid. And when you're the only person doing all those things, there's just this crushing weight that happens uh, because you know that if you – because you can't be effective every day, right? Like some days you're not going to feel as much like working and, and you kind of can't work because your brain just won't do it or won't do a good job. On those days, you're very critically aware that if you don't do this stuff – nobody's going to do it and the game will never ever get done and maybe it was never going to get done anyway and maybe you were stupid for trying to do such a big project and the game's going to suck and no one's going to like it and like all that stuff goes through your head and feels very real right Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know like like now since braid was a big success it's 
it seems silly to think like, oh, you know, maybe, or to think that that I shouldn't have had big doubts about it or whatever. But I didn't know that anyone was going to pay attention to the game, right? For all I knew, it was going to come out and sort of get swept under the rug, and you know, maybe ten thousand people would buy it, which is actually sounds like a significant amount of money, but not when you've been working on for something for like four years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that 2008 was a big year when indie games kind of took off. So, um, you know, Braid sort of rode that wave, uh, which was fortunate. But, you know, all this stuff happens in that case. In, in the current case, I sort of have that kind of thing. I get dread with regard to the game design right now because I'm the main designer. So if I don't finish the design or if I design puzzles that aren't as good as they need to be, oh man, the whole game's going to suck. I'm going to miss this opportunity at making this really beautiful game. Like, you know, even though I worked four years on it, it just blah, blah, blah. Um, So that still happens, but at least it doesn't happen with programming and all that stuff now. Um, because there's other programmers on the team and the other programmers on the team know that there's other programmers too. And so if you're having a slow day or you don't do quite such a good job on something, somebody else can pick it up mm-hmm. and with it. And there's momentum that you don't have to worry about. So that's all really awesome. And I have that momentum helping me out in most departments, most of the time. And that's really good. Uh, but yeah, the it's not um, when you try to do an ambitious game like that, like Super Meat Boy or Fez or anything. You know, you watch Indie Game the movie and you feel like, wow, that's all really over dramatic, or, or why, why are they so freaked out? Like being that freaked out is not a mistake. Like that's just kind of what happens when you try to do something of that scale. Um, it's just what the human brain does. So you, it helps to be prepared for that and be ready to deal with it. Yeah, I'm not working on that ambitious of a project right now. I've been maybe working on it or for a month. And just the other day, I kind of had those feelings like I'm never going to get this done or anything. Yeah. It, it was just weird. Well, I think you build that that muscle, too. You build, like, the ability to do bigger projects through doing smaller ones. So, like, if you do, the, you do this project and after about a month, you feel like, ah, oh, this is a big slog. I'm never going to get it done. But eventually you get it done and maybe it takes, like, two months or something, right? Or you mm-hmm. pick it up a year later after letting it languish, and then you finish it. But then you can always look back at that and say, well, that game took a little while, but I finished it, and it was interesting. And, and then next time you make something, maybe you don't feel uh, like it's a slog until three months or something, you know? I don't mm-hmm. know. You, you've given a lot of tips on um, game design and uh, just tips to indie developers throughout the show, but if you could give one big tip, like one ultimate tip to a a, uh, a new game developer or somebody that's getting um, good at game development, what would it be? Uh, I'd reiterate that point about making stuff is how you learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but also that uh, the quality with which you make stuff determines the quality of game developer that you are, right? Like, it's it's a, it's a, it sounds like an obvious point, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a good developer is someone who makes good stuff, and a bad developer is someone who makes bad stuff. But when people sit down to make things, it sort of goes in the opposite direction, so that that logic doesn't kick in. It's like, oh, I made this game, and it's kind of cool, and it's just like somebody else's game, but it's kind of my main character, and I did the sound effect a little different, and so that's neat. 
but you need to be able to look at that from from sort of the global perspective and say, mm-hmm. but this is this is really just a clone of something else, and it's actually not that good. And maybe it's fine as a learning experience, but if you want it to be a quality game, you could do this and that and that and that, and make it better, right? Mm-hmm. That's what makes you a good developer is seeing how you could make it better and then actually making it better and, and not being satisfied with something that just exists because there's millions of people out there now who can make something that just exists and is not that good. So the thing that sets you above everybody else is your ability to make something better than that. And that's all obvious, but when people sit down to make games, it doesn't kick into their brain that way for some reason. And if you can just make that happen... Overnight, you just become a dramatically better game developer, even if you barely know how to program, you know, because that eye for detail and that eye for quality, there's this thing I call the quality gene because it seems like some people just don't have it. Um, But yeah, if you have that eye for quality, that's what makes you good. Hmm. That's interesting. I like it. Um, I was re... Or... I was sitting in the waiting room the other day, and there was this magazine next to me called The Atlantic, and I saw this header on it, and it said, The Most Dangerous Gamer, and I opened it up wondering what it was all about, and it was a uh, really, really long article about you and the development process on Braid and stuff, and um, I, I thought it was pretty interesting, but why did they call it The Most Dangerous Gamer is what I didn't quite understand. Because, okay, first of all, they're not, they don't, the editors of that magazine are like regular people, right? They don't mm-hmm. know about games. So they don't know the difference between a gamer and a game developer. And they were trying to make a pun, right? There's this mm-hmm. thing, it's like a movie or something or a story called The Most Dangerous Game that's about like hunting other people. Ah. It's a pun on that, I guess, but like it's a very good one. So, yeah, it's. <laughs> It's like if you wrote a, a something about a novelist, right, and you called it the most dangerous re- reader, you mm-hmm. know, the guy. Well, it doesn't make any. Well, but I guess it's, you know, it's a pretty interesting article. It's interesting to see how this kind of game and subject gets pitched for uh, like regular everyday people who don't understand video games and game design. You know. Mm-hmm. Hey, Alan, we're getting some weird noises from your end. It sounds like there's airplanes and stuff in your room. Um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're like a porch kind of area. I'm just going to try to move you. Okay. Actually, there's a 747 flying through their room. Oh, okay. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, um, also, um, the articles that I've been reading about you talk a lot about you doing Tai Chi? Is... Yep. I mean, I don't know if they talk a lot about that. It's something that I do, uh, when I'm being good, I do it daily, just as a, as a practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a good thing to do. <laughs> so, uh, what exactly got you into it, and why do you enjoy doing it? Um, well, I, so, uh, about the same time I started, uh, about the same time I started making braid, I uh, started going to a kung fu school here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I eventually started doing that at a moderately serious level. Um, so I actually know a lot more kung fu than I do tai chi. Like tai chi, I know a, a basic um, 
you know, set of movements that takes about 20 or 25 minutes to do that I can do once a day. But for Kung Fu, I know like, you know, 44 ways to throw people in like 37 joint locks, like hundreds and hundreds of things when you, when you add it all up. Um, and, uh, but, but I got injured in the middle of that training or I didn't get injured. I had a pre-existing injury that I didn't know about. And by working really hard physically, I ended up making worse. So I'm, I'm in the middle of waiting for that to heal, uh, before I can go back and do more comfort, but it's taking a long time because I didn't pay enough attention to my injury and I let it get really bad. Uh, would you recommend it to other game developers? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's good. All right. Is is it a good de-stressor is what I'm trying to get at? Well, yeah, I mean, it's good for a lot of things. Um, part of, part of it is, a, you know, you definitely are way less stressed. It, it lets your body be a little more active, like even something gentle like Tai Chi, which you would think is not physically strenuous, like your body just gets built up from that because you're using it in really subtle ways that works out like your fine muscle tissue and you get circulation everywhere and stuff. Mm -hmm. But interesting thing about Tai Chi that's been really informative to me as a game designer, um, which, uh, is probably hard to explain, but you know, like I said, this sequence is, it's about 20 or 25 minutes worth of movements. And the way that you learn it, is, you know, you first start out, you're a beginner, you get shown the very basics of these movements, and you're really clumsy, and you're doing them. And then eventually, so for me, after I'd been learning maybe three or four months of Tai Chi, I knew the whole sequence. Um, But I still was pretty bad at it. But after that point, you get better by doing the sequence again and again, and just feeling what's better. And you can go into the school once in a while and get corrections, like, no, no, you know, your hand should be over there, you you developed a bad habit or whatever. But most of the learning is already contained in the, somehow the combination of those movements you got taught and in human body. And you, on your own, can figure out a lot of how to do it. Not everything, because there's definitely some things that a teacher really ought to show you. But And actually, you have to. The teacher can't make you learn. But like You have to make you learn, and the teacher can mm-hmm. only cut you. So, but what's interesting about that, and I think this affected the design of the witness in some way at least, is that there's a huge degree of very subtle knowledge and ideas contained just in this series of movements somehow that you can just explore deeper and deeper every time you do it. Um, and it doesn't get boring. Like you would think doing the same 20 minutes of something every day, like after a couple years, you would get bored of it. But it doesn't get boring because you're seeing new things every single time. So that's very uh, kind of amazing, actually. And if I can make a game design someday in my life that has that level of complexity and subtlety to it, then I will consider that to be a great success. Awesome. I'm going to have to look up Tai Chi now. <laughs> Or what was that? It's worth doing for sure, but but make sure you learn it at a good school because there's there's bad schools that teach you you know not very interesting things. All right, um, we gotta wrap up the uh, interview because we're running a bit short on time and we need to get the uh, overreact guys in. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna ask one more question. Um, do you program shirtless? Do I program shirtless? Not that I'm aware of. All right. 
guy? Is there some benefit to programming shirtless? I don't know. It's just like every other person we interview, they, they program shirtless or they don't. <laughs> I hope they either do one or the other. Like, office could be a little odd. All right. Cafes and stuff. So, walk through an internet cafe, tear off your shirt, and start programming. Makes sense. Just, you know, I worked. And being in school. It's cutting out really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, Jonathan, could uh, you call back in a sec? Like. Uh, sure. Um, All right. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Much better. All right. So, what were you saying? Sorry. Oh, I was just saying, you know, back during the during the braid days, I would work at home, and especially when going through certification, and just like you're working there, and then you eat and sleep and wake up, and you're in the same place all the time. It it really uh, it drives me crazy a little bit. So I um I got into this habit of just going out to coffee shops and stuff and working there. So being shirtless in those settings is maybe not the best way to do it. I can imagine why. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show with us. You can stay for the um, checkup with Overreact about their game, or you can head out, whichever uh, I'll works. I'll hang out, totally. All right. And uh, we'll get on to our checkup with Overreact right after this. So uh, this part of the show, we're doing a checkup with Overreact. We have these about once every other month. And basically, they give us updates on their game, A Shapian's Tale, which you can go Google search or go to their site, which... What's your URL currently? Teamoverreact.com. Oh, so you guys did get a .com then? Yes, we have the, uh, we have the Shapian's Tale.com and the uh, Teamoverreact.com. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, Shapian's Tale is kind of just directs to a page that just says a Shapian's Tale on it, but we're working on getting a site set up. Yep. All right. Um. Basically, they've been working on this game for a few years now. Connor is the head of it, and um. Alan, I believe, is the second longest member in the team, like person who's been with them the longest. And I'm gonna let him take it from here on what the game's about and what the new updates are. All right. So, um, for anybody who hasn't heard of A Shapian's Tale, it is an MMO RPG that um has three main themes, and themes are teamwork, history, and personality, and like. Basically, we try to employ these themes through all of our all of our mechanics somehow in order to kind of unify the experience. And I, I kind of let the uh, the basis of the game be told by Alan right here. All right. So the basis of the game are adventuring, which you can think of as you know your basic sort of uh, gameplay. And that involves combat and doing puzzles that you encounter and uh, quests and yeah, quests and stuff like that. Then there's crafting, 
which is the point of crafting being one of the three is we want that to be an entire part of the game that is equal to the adventuring. So adventuring is not superseding any of the other three. They're all equal parts in the game. And then the third is mercantile, so owning a business and buying and selling things and property yeah. and stuff like that. So um, just to go more into those bases, um, like he said, we, we wanted to kind of take those bases and make them all equal because we find that in a lot of MMOs, it's like, you know, you have your, your adventuring and like that is completely, you know, fleshed out as far as it can be. You have tons of quests, weapons, item drops, um, or it's actually pretty bare bones, but they don't really like include um, things on, you know, mercantile um, or, or crafting really. I mean, like crafting is something games are really going into today. I mean, especially like games like Minecraft and, and Skyrim, like, but um, we wanted to make it to where, like, you could actually pick up a Shavian sale and decide, hey, I want to be a merchant, and um, that's what I'm going to be about. And I don't have to worry about going out and fighting monsters and leveling up my character that way, because I can level up my mercantile rather than leveling up, you know, my my adventuring. So we wanted to actually kind of expand on each one of these rather than just kind of allowing players to just trade with each other and maybe sit around and sell a few items out of an inventory. Um, we actually wanted to give them a whole experience as a merchant and as well as a crafter. So that's kind of like what the, what the game's basically about overall. And yeah, and Alan can go on. So um, as Brett said, we've been in development for about, I think we would say a year or year, a year and a half almost. A but we just uh, a few months ago, uh, if you were listening, we actually announced a tech demo that we released. And then shortly thereafter, um, a bit of a tragedy happened. As I was reorganizing how we were backing up our files, my computer crashed, and we lost about um, two months of work. So we've just finally regained what we lost, which was... Um, which is, we basically have the Tech 1 series, and we were up to 1.1? 1.1. And we actually had to redo one redo 1.0 and also redo 1.1 and then make 1.2 so it was definitely a, a long process getting back and that's why if anyone who follows us our blog has not been updated and it will be updated today um but we've really been just like busting our back just to try to get this game out. right and and of course we now have I, I think two or three different ways to constantly back up our files so we learned our lesson on that one <laughs> but um the good news is that we have a 1.2 that we're going to be putting out today. Yeah. Um, well, not right now. It's not up yet, but we're going to be putting it out around 4.30, 5 o'clock-ish yeah. sometime then, just because we have to make a few little changes and get, get the, the server, server set up and yeah. all that. And that's an but, Eastern yeah, time, right? be available. And um, if anyone has played the last tech demo, you you probably went in there and played tag for a few minutes and was like, wow, this is boring, and you left. But we decided that, you know, this demo that we're putting out is definitely showing you a lot more about what a shaping scale is about. We actually, we looked at our last demo as a milestone of just getting online. I mean, it took, it took a while for us to get the game running online correctly and running efficiently. So now we actually started implementing a lot more gameplay features. And I guess the... The best way to look at it is we're in tech demo stages, but I kind of I feel the game is a prototype itself. 
um, what we have right now. It's not really, it's, it's using realistic graphics. So the graphics are completely the way they'll be. Realistic for a shape. Realistic for the game, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, a two, it's a 2D game, if anyone didn't know, and it, it has a Castle Crashers style of graphics. But um, the graphics that are in this demo are going to look the same as the game advances into its further stages, alpha and beta and, and the final. Um, so we actually, we're not just like throwing together some boxes and circles and showing you a prototype, but the, the mechanics are, are like a prototype. So like our crafting currently right now is not the way the crafting will be in the final game. It's actually going to be a, a lot more complex and more um, involved. But we, we gave the players kind of a more, what I'd like to say, a primitive approach to the game. And not only did we give them a primitive approach, we made them primitive. And I think that that's probably what, what it saved us in a way. Like players will enjoy it because they actually feel like their crafting fits their, their, their time period they're playing in. So um, the game goes through many time periods. As I just mentioned, we're doing the primitive time period now. And that's just like cavemen, spears, and uh, you have saber-toothed tigers and, and uh, elks running around and all that. And then eventually you're going to movement the game's going to move into a more medieval time and then it'll actually you know it will get really really in depth and move into different time periods such as like when they people started using boats and traveling the seas there's going to be like industrial areas so the game really evolves over time and the way i like to to say it is like cavemen are kind of like the prim, the prototype the humans so this is kind of like our prototype to the game and you guys play as like the prototype shapians but it's definitely still fun, and I ha- we have a lot of fun with it right now, just messing around, running around, killing things, and partying up and all that. Um, I, Anything I, about the demo that you would the like demo, to? Any features uh, that you want to? Any features? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to explain how it works. You know, that's, I mean, what we added since the last demo. Oh, okay. So in the last demo, as Connor mentioned, we had a, a tag mini game. And that was really all there was to the game. The rest of it was just, look, we can have cities, and we can have wildernesses, and, you know, that kind of stuff. We actually now have the party system, which is really essential to the way the game works. About teamwork, you have to be able to get into parties with other players, go mm-hmm. do, go into the wilderness and do things. And most of the game has been moved into the wildernesses as well, instead of being in the tag mini game. Um, so there's um, there's more to do in your parties, the way that which is uh, the way you know, the game, the way will, the game finally will finally be. work. Yeah. Even though it's all like not very few of the things in there are the way the game will work. They're just this is kind of I don't know how to describe. Like you said, a prototype. It's kind of like a prototype, yeah. Um, but at the same time, we want to have we want it to have the same feel, in some ways, like the same you know graphic style and um, and like the three, the themes like uh, teamwork, individuality, or personality and history. We kind of want to have that already, even though we're not using the mechanics we're going to use because we're still building up our technology. So yeah. it's definitely worth playing to see how yeah. it evolves. Um, and I guess one more thing before I we could start taking a few questions if anybody has any about the game um going over one of the biggest things in the game is is uh teamwork and basically the the game's called a shapian's tale and if anyone hasn't noticed the word shape is in the title and that really says a lot about the game you you play as shapes so you choose between circles triangles and squares um and there's currently only only one race you are playing as right now but you can look forward to seeing a, a plethora of races as the game evolves and yeah, so basically, we we want to kind of just evolve the game as 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 much as we can without yeah. without straying from the teamwork, history, and personality, personality. the whole time. Through. Yeah, 
So, is there any anybody who has any questions about the game and, and what it's about? Anything we missed? Um, I'm checking the IRC. It doesn't look like anything is really <laughs> happening. Really paying attention. Um, only a few people are chatting in there right now. Um, sadly. Well, uh, I guess I mean it's just a like 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 I said, it's, it's a check in and all. Like, we're mm-hmm. not really here to like describe the whole game to an yeah. audience, but. I mean, if there's, if you really want to learn about the game, we actually, um, Emmanuel just rewrote the the description we have on our on our blog, which is found at teamoverreact.com, and it's on the Shaping Tale page. So, if you really want to know what the game is about in more detail, you can go there and check it out. And we'll also have the link to the demo on that page when we put it up later on. Um, but yeah, um, oh, got, and oh, sorry. I guess one more thing I I wanted to mention was. This is actually our first time meeting up in, in, in real life, so it's pretty exciting if, if anybody knows who we are. We, we came from video games, and we were all from different places, except me and Emmanuel. We grew up as childhood friends, but this is the first time we are meeting, and we met about four days ago, and yeah. since, since then, we've got so much done on this demo, and it's, it's pretty exciting. So if anyone is working in a team, and they feel like it's, it's an important thing to meet up if, if you're going to be making a bigger serious project or just developing a serious team it's definitely worth it um it's, it's a great time and i don't know just anyone who who's didn't know that yeah we're all sitting in the same place for the first time yeah it's pretty awesome and then uh you guys are at tyler's right yeah yeah we're in new york right now so we all had to get train tickets except tyler obviously <laughs> um he didn't have to buy any train tickets but yeah we all had to get train tickets to come up here and we had to plan it like a month month beforehand and it was a it was a pretty big pretty big deal but it's definitely definitely turning out pretty awesome especially with this demo we're about to release and then um how are the puzzles coming along because that's that's one of the main things that i really want to see happen in a champion's tale so the problem with that is we kind of well there's a lot of different kinds of like not kinds of puzzles it's not like we categorize them exactly but the, the basic puzzles that we're going to include will involve push blocks and you know basic physics and and the different abilities of the shapians to like push blocks or some the square can pick up a block and different types of abilities like that and without the the actual box to be physics in the game we aren't able to include that kind of puzzle but we still have sort of the mystery in the world kind of puzzle going on that you can look around and figure out, oh, wait a minute, there's there's hidden factors yeah. to the game and that a, I didn't notice. Yeah, there's kind of like an overarching puzzle right now, um, and if anyone plays it, they'll they'll realize that soon, um, and it, it's it's going to get people, I hope. Uh, we've been planning it, and and it's definitely like, a lot like what John was saying, like, we, we, it, we don't really want to just make it to where it's all about just mechanics with puzzles, and like having a, a giant puzzle going on while there's a bunch of little puzzles underneath kind of gives the players like they don't even really realize that they're they're trying they're solving a puzzle um and i think i think that's going to be pretty exciting to see our, our players figure out it's also great how the how our bigger overarching puzzles tie into the story which is one of the big themes of the game yeah is, is i mean i guess if uh if anyone's interested i'll explain the, the the story because i think it's probably one of the most interesting parts about the game is i mean it's an mmo and it's it it seems almost impossible to have a storyline without it being like a backstory, like, oh yeah, these races have been fighting this giant enemy for thousands of years and this war is never going to end, because that's how MMOs usually play. But we, we wanted to take it in a diff- different direction, and we wanted to allow the players to actually 
you know, evolve the story and, and make the story themselves. And the way we decided to do that, and I'll just bring it out now because you're going to find out anyway, is through this, these things we call campaigns. And um, you can actually find those on the Champions Tale page. But I'll just briefly explain. So campaigns are, are what I like to call like just a huge version of a quest that is a lot more complicated. And the biggest thing about it is that there's always someone or some party of people that, that, that win. And it becomes competitive in the beginning. So you have like what we call solo campaigns and you have players going out and doing a quest. And when they solve that quest, they actually get put down in history as the person who saw who did that quest. And rather than just having an NPC who just gives out the same quest a hundred million times and you have people crowding them, you know, it, it, which tends to happen in almost every MMO I've played, um, we, we allowed it to where the player can actually say, you know, I did that. And, and you can find it here in this library and you can see a statue of me killing this giant mammoth and no one else did that. Um, and so it starts out with this competitive feel. And then we, we like to move into a collaborative feel because the game is about, is about teamwork. So it's an, it's an interesting, it's kind of like a paradox. We have people that are competing in the beginning and they really don't realize that they're, they're, they're advancing through the story as they, as they compete. And then as they, as the story progresses more, we start getting into bigger campaigns such as Shapia campaigns and race campaigns, which are, you know, race campaigns include just the whole race itself will actually have a giant campaign that they'll all work on and collaborate with. Um, mm-hmm. And then Shapia campaigns is just the whole world together. So there will be mo- there will be moments where the whole world is working towards something. Like there's, you know, maybe there's this giant bridge that needs to be put back together to cross, and you actually have the whole Shapia working on getting this bridge constructed. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really realize that their competitive selves, the people who were killing the dragons and saving the princesses and all, they were needed in order for everybody to come together. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of just like the message behind the game overall is that like, you know, you start out with, with individuality, but you end up with like a whole, a whole group effort in things. Uh, my only question about that is what happens with the quests? Like, um, obviously there's going to be hopefully thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people playing at once. And they're all going to be going there for quests. What happens when you run out of quests? There are there's two two solutions to that actually. The first is that there's the campaigns aren't the quests of the game. There are small quests, but we have them more as a, like a randomly generated thing, so they won't be static because that's the, like that's the one the thing like, we try to saying. avoid. We don't want people all crowding around because you're like, oh, this is the guy who will give you you know that cool ring who's really good if you're a bard and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we shy away from any kind of static quest, but there's still small quests that will always be available to different levels who just need questing. And then we plan on, since the story has, like, it's a proper story, we're not going to write a story forever, the story will come to an end, and we will have some kind of system. We've been talking about this, and we have a pretty solid plan, I think, and plan for how we will just restart the server, or not the server, the story, so that people who join the game way later can play the story again and see the And there will be, eventually there will be multiple servers who run the server story, so whatever server you're on, yeah. you'll be on a different spot than someone else, and... Yeah, it's and, the same story every time, but yeah, and it's kind of interesting though because when you run through one server, you'll notice that the hero who did this is not the hero who did this. It's not the same hero in every other server, um, and it's also it, with a regular quest like Alan was saying, like we don't we don't necessarily want them to just be like static quests where you go to an NPC and he has a list of quests that you eventually do all of them and then you move on. 
it's it's really going to be a, a lot more personal. I'd like to say, like when you're walking through a city, there might be a guy run by, and like he might only be client side, and that means that you're the only person who sees him, maybe, um, or everybody in your party sees him, and he comes up and says, "Hey, I need somebody to go save somebody in the wilderness for me," and like no one ever really got that chance, but it's just a regular quest. So like we really want to stray away from just having static NPCs giving you the same quest over and over, so you can just boost your character, um, mm-hmm. and you know just. It's, make called, a new one. it's called a Shapian's Tale because your Shapian has his story. Yeah. And that means you can't have the same story as the other guy who went to go get the spider-killing quest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alright, that that does make a bit of sense. I, I'm i still, like, kind of confused about it, but I know you guys will figure it out, and then obviously it'll all work out, so I'm... Yeah, I mean, we've been, we've been thinking about it for a long time, and I, I think it's, a, it's definitely going to work out. We, what we do is we try to write a story... Um, I mean, it, there is a story behind it that we, we're really in charge of, but we let the players, I don't want to say like we trick the players into thinking they're doing something, because they really are, and they're, they're really, it's up to the players and the story to advance. Um, and it, it, it makes it to where players really don't know what's happening next. And, and we do, because I, I'd like to say we're the gods, um, because we made the game, so we have, we actually know the, the prophecy, you know what I mean? We know what's going to happen. However, we don't know how it's going to happen. Um, and that's what's so interesting being a developer is actually like when the game gets into campaigns and all, we're actually going to be surprised to see the way players take on campaigns and the way they, they work together. And like maybe a lot of solo campaigns will work out differently than we, we thought. And then maybe one server is working completely different than another. However, the same story is being told. So it, it, there's, there's a, a static story in a sense, but this, the story is actually pretty well thought out so far. I mean, we, we like to say that there's errors. Um, and errors are a really long, long span of time in the game. Um, I, I couldn't, couldn't really put a number on it because they could be, you know, errors aren't always the same length. Um, but, like, the era really... I don't really know how to explain it. The, like, game, the game changes because new new features become locked or unlocked based on what area you're in. Or yeah. The, the game can change in, in interesting ways throughout the... Um, yeah evolution of the of yeah. the world and, the and, story. and not only not only can campaigns really like just make the storyline advance um and just make it seem like oh yeah you know we're we're doing some more stuff and we we got some more information about what's going on in the world like the way we're we're kind of approaching expansions and i don't really want to call them expansions because it's, they don't really work like your typical expansion or anything. um but i'll call them expansions just for the sake of it uh, basically, like, let's say we want to have release expansion for a new playable character. We don't, we don't necessarily want the players to just say, oh, like, oh, hey, guys, we released the expansion. Now you can all make a new character if you buy this expansion. We actually want to make the players feel like they work towards unlocking those characters. And the way we do that is with these campaigns. So, like, one example I always give is, like, you're going to have, like, one new race that no one knows about. And, like, we're going to give some of the new unique players or the players that have been dedicated to the game like a chance to play as this race and then it's like it's obviously going to be a window of a, an opportunity for them to play as this race without anybody kind of knowing and it's it, it makes them to where they're starting to advance a race that no one else even knows about and then there's other races that are advancing in the storyline and then before you know it you'll see that the campaigns of the race that no one knows about are actually like intersecting with the campaigns that the races everyone knows about and like there's going to be points where, like, when you discover a new race, it's literally going to be discovery, feeling like you actually discovered a new race. Not like we just put a new race in the game and you're looking at it. 
more like, you know, you see something you haven't seen before for the first time in a cave, and it's actually another player. And it, and, and they look completely different than anything you've seen. Um, and that that's kind of one of the biggest feelings I want to capture in the game is just like discovery is, is definitely a big word that I'd like to put with shaping stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really interesting. I, I can't think of any games that have... <laughs> that are like that, where the the community kind of develops the story, but you guys mentioned um, you gotta see how the players are gonna use your game, and yeah. um, that reminded me of when Ian and I were working on Indie Burst, uh, for those of you that don't know, that's Indie Functions, uh, Indie Game Development, Social Network, uh, we haven't worked on it in a while, it's pretty dead right now, but um, just something we overlooked was that we expected the user to, you know, understand it because it's very based on Twitter, so we thought that they'd understand it, and then, you know, they just grasp the new concepts, except somebody commented that the user might use it differently, and uh, some people did use the things differently than I expected it to. So yeah. I'm, I'm impressed that you guys are taking that into thought and obviously working around it. Or are right, going to work around it. It's definitely a mission mm-hmm. to try to uh, try to really wrap your head around all the possibilities that that could come out of such a complex game, um, and it, it kind of becomes scary. You don't really want to you don't really want to think about it too much because then you start developing the game to actually be a certain way, no matter what, so that the players play it the way you want to play it, and then you realize, wow, I just I just stripped the, all the players of their freedom. So you really got to like. You gotta let it be open for interpretation, really, um, and it's not bad. I, I think it's a good thing to, uh, to to learn something new about your own game. Um, it's, it's definitely a good experience. So, is but, there anything I mean, else you guys want to bring up? Uh, we gotta wrap up the show pretty quick here. Yeah, no, that's basically it. And if anyone wants to check it out, just go on teamoverreact.com, and we'll probably have the demo up in the next three. In two to three hours. Yep, and that's T E A M O V E R R E A C T dot com. Team Overreact. All right. Yeah, I'll actually paste that in the IRC for anyone who really wants to check it out. And uh, we'll tweet about it, of course. Our Twitter is at Indie Function, I N D I E F U N C T I O N. And uh, hopefully we'll have this uploaded as well, so anybody who wants to listen to it afterwards can listen to it. And, um,. I believe that pretty much concludes today's show, so I'm going to play some music, and then we're going to get into the credits. Thank you for listening to broadcast number 32 of Indie Radio. This broadcast was broadcasted live with 1,000 mics and was recorded using Adocity. All music was found on Newgrounds coming from Nemesis 3 and 3 Clicks Philip. Thank you again for listening in, and we hope to have you be a part of the next broadcast, which will either be August 25th during Ludum Dare 24 or the weekend before on August 18th. Have a good weekend.